welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Today joining me we have Professor Tom Quinn. Tom is a cardiac nurse with over 40 years experience, having graduated from, I think, starting in orthopaedics. He's currently the Professor of Cardiovascular Nursing and lead for the Emergency Cardiovascular and Critical Care Research Group in the Faculty of Health at Kingston University in St George's. He's been honoured by the College of Paramedics for his work in training, in research and in development, and has worked in academia, advised governments and set up programs across the country that have improved standards in care and outcomes in cardiovascular disease. Welcome, thank you very much for joining us. And thank you very much for having me. So I guess the sort of first question out the box is, how do we improve outcomes in cardiac arrest? What are the sort of options that we've got, the pathways that we can improve on? So it does seem that after 50 or more years of attempting to use pharmacological interventions to improve outcomes from cardiac arrest, it's become increasingly clear that the recipe for success at the population level is going to be more bystander CPR and early defibrillation through principally public access defibrillation schemes, through the use of telephone CPR when people do call 999. And then for those who survive to reach hospital, very intensive focused care, you know, we know about targeted temperature management, we know about interventional cardiology, and we know crucially about rehabilitation following the initial recovery. Where medicines fit in, in the current science, is still unclear. So the basics seem to work, no pun intended. The high-tech end for those who survive to reach hospital seems to improve outcomes for those lucky enough to reach hospital. But we still see a very, very poor outcomes for the vast majority of patients who have out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. It's interesting because when I first went through the ALS system, there was a huge amount of evidence placed on the drugs and remembering the doses and getting the intervals absolutely spot on. But it seemed as though the evidence has drifted away from that. Yes, and probably about 20 years ago, I was an ALS instructor and I did the drugs and delivery lecture in the old ALS course. And I stood up and I looked at the audience and I said, of course, there is no evidence that anything that I'm about to tell you makes a difference in terms of improving outcomes for patients. And I almost got a standing ovation then. <laughs> but we, we have had the evolution of guidelines over the recent decades, which have been prompted by this groundswell of high quality research in resuscitation science, which of course we didn't have hitherto. So we're getting a much better picture of what appears to be helpful and what appears not to be helpful. But of course, it's not black and white, any of this. So if we can look at one of those trials, and, and the one that jumps to mind is the Paramedic 2 trial, which I think has had a pretty seismic shift in the way that we manage cardiac arrests, particularly out of hospital. I'd like to kind of dig into the detail of it a little bit and chat about what it shows. Yes, I was privileged to be one of the investigators on Paramedic 2, working with a team led by Gavin Perkins, who will be well known to your listeners as a professor of critical care medicine and director of clinical trials at Warwick University. And we had a substantial team funded through the National Institutes for Health Research to try and address what was considered a really important question. So I paraphrase but in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients, is adrenaline helpful or harmful? I can give you a summary of the trial if you'd like. 
This was a randomized double blind trial involving just over 8,000 out of hospital cardiac arrest patients, five NHS ambulance services in England and Wales, and patients were randomized to either adrenaline or to a saline placebo. And the primary outcome was the rate of survival at 30 days. So the trial was powered for survival at 30 days. And our secondary outcomes included survival to discharge with a favourable neurological outcome. And we also pre-specified a whole host of further analyses, which we can possibly talk about later on. So pretty big numbers, but initially at least a fairly short focus on, I guess, on ROSC as much as anything. I think the important thing to drop in here is what the goals of attempted resuscitation from cardiac arrest are. And there's been a recent report colleagues may have seen from ILCOR, the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation, which has uh, set out what the preferred outcomes are from cardiac arrest research. And those relate principally to what's important to patients. So, of course, if I have a cardiac arrest, I want the outcome of interest to be that I am alive, neurologically intact in the medium to long term with a good quality of life. Now, of course, Return to spontaneous circulation is a necessary prerequisite to achieving those other things. And I think when we come to address how the international community have viewed the findings of Paramedic 2, we'll see where ROSC fits in there. ROSC wasn't one of our important outcomes in the trial. We were focused on 30-day survival. So I guess drawing the difference between a sort of a transient return of circulation that is unsustained and a patient who actually is in a sense, viable in the, at least the short to medium term. Yes, because, of course, the consequences of a, an alive patient, but with a overall poor outcome from cardiac arrest is a tragedy. So if we sort of fast forward a little bit to your results and look at what you were able to draw out of the data. Yes, happy to do that. So reminding people about our primary objective was to determine the effectiveness of adrenaline at 30 days. We had 65% of our patients were male, average age 69, and 6 of 10 patients received bystander CPR before the ambulance arrived, which is, is really good. 20% of our patients were in an initially shockable rhythm, and the vast majority, 90% or so, had a medical cause determined for their cardiac arrest. It's interesting in terms of the Scottish model, because we're quite reliant on bystander CPR and first responder schemes, particularly in rural Scotland, because the ambulance resources stretch so thin. Yes, I live in a pretty rural area and the same applies, really. So what we've done sort of outside of the trial is lots of local campaigning to get people to learn basic life support and to place as many public access defibrillators as we can around town and villages. The same applies, really. So in our trial then, so we enrolled just over 8,000 patients and 3,999 received placebo and 4,015 received adrenaline. And in terms of the outcomes, and I'll take them in this order, we did measure return of spontaneous circulation. And in patients who received placebo, a return of spontaneous circulation was 11.7%. In those who received adrenaline, it was 36.3%. Quite a significant difference between the two groups at that point. Quite a, quite a big difference. What happens when you fast forward a little bit further down the timescale and look towards your primary outcomes? So three times as much ROSC with adrenaline, 
in terms of getting to hospital and so admitted alive to hospital, the placebo group 8%, the adrenaline group 23.8%, so an almost four times increase in getting to hospital alive, because of course that's patients who get ROSC are more likely to be taken to hospital anyway. In terms of survival to 30 days, so our primary outcome, 2.4% in the placebo group, 3.2% in the adrenaline group. Now, let me put a bit of that into context. We started off with 8,000 patients in this trial, roughly 4,000 in each arm. Of the 4,000 who received placebo, 94 of those patients survived to 30 days. And in terms of those who received adrenaline, again, around 4,000 patients, 130 survived to 30 days. 36 extra survivors yeah. with the use of adrenaline at 30 days. Yes. So you are more likely to get a return of spontaneous circulation, more likely to get to hospital alive, and more likely to be alive at 30 days if you were in the adrenaline group. But the numbers, as you see, are decreasing all the time. We started with 4,000 patients in each arm, and that gives you a sense of how poor outcomes are in patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest who get to the point in their resuscitation of needing adrenaline. In terms of favourable neurological outcome, which is something that, you know, I think is incredibly important for patients and families and for society, there was no significant difference. So 1.9%, that's 74 patients in the placebo group, and 2.2%, that's 87 patients in the adrenaline group, had a favourable neurological outcome. And then if you remember back to when we first published the trial and the media coverage, poor neurological outcome was something that was discussed a lot, both in media circles and in scientific circles. So in the placebo group, 16 out of 90 patients had a poor neurological outcome. And when talking about the modified ranking here, that's 17.8%. And in the adrenaline group, 39 out of 126, so that's 31%. So there were significantly more with severe brain damage in the adrenaline group. But when we did a post hoc comparison, so the statisticians got to work on this, uh, the odds ratio for this was 0.51. We explained that by there were more survivors numerically in the adrenaline group, as we just described. So there were more people who had a poor neurological outcome. And the bottom line was that there wasn't actually a between-group difference in the rate of favourable neurological outcome. So more survivors in the adrenaline group, and therefore more people with a poor neurological outcome in the adrenaline group numerically. So in terms of our ability to intervene, we can use a drug to restart the heart, but actually that might not affect the overall prognosis. Yes, and I think that was the headline. And some people used the strap line to describe our trial results as adrenaline can restart the heart, but it's no good for the brain. I think actually it's a bit more subtle than that. If I just come back a bit, though, we talked earlier on about what it is that we need to do to improve outcomes from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And we did a bit of comparative effectiveness work. So if we take adrenaline administration as the reference, then the early call for help is 10 times more effective at achieving a good outcome than giving adrenaline. Bystander CPR is eight times more effective at achieving a good outcome than adrenaline. And defibrillation in those who had a shockable rhythm was 20 times more effective than giving adrenaline. So if we took the chain of survival, we would perhaps say that not all links are equal. That, I suppose, really reinforces the work that 
Sandpiper and lots of other organisations have been doing across the whole country in terms of reinforcing that early access to defibrillation and early bystander CPR. Absolutely. I think there's a pretty wide consensus now worldwide that that's the key to success in these patients. So, of course, we published our findings and there was a bit of debate about what it actually meant. And there was quite a bit of the literature saying this is the death knell for adrenaline or epinephrine if you're in the United States. ILCOR, which, of course, is the International Liaison Committee on Resuscitation, which is a broad group of representatives from the various resuscitation councils around the world who then assess the evidence independent of the investigators. So I might have a view as one of the paramedic two investigators about what our results mean. But in terms of the international consensus statement and then the subsequent guideline recommendation, we got a slightly different viewpoint. And ILCOR took the position that given the data I've just shared with you, that adrenaline is very effective at getting a return of spontaneous circulation, much more effective than a placebo, that adrenaline is more effective at improving admission to hospital so that the patients might have the opportunity to benefit from some of the specialists in hospital care, and that 30-day survival seemed to be also relatively positive, although numbers very small, that ILCOR took the view that they should upgrade the recommendation for adrenaline on the basis of our trial results. And that caused a lot of discussion. And of course, the way ILCOR work is that they put their draft consensus out for consultation. And I would commend, I think that's probably still available on the ILCOR website, commend the discussion that's available online there for people just to get a bit more of a sense of the arguments pro and con on this. Certainly on the face of it, it seems quite counterintuitive that we're increasing the the weight of evidence behind adrenaline, having just proved that it doesn't make much difference in terms of functional outcome down the line. I think the way that Ilcor saw it, looking at their statement on this, was very much around saying that whilst epinephrine hasn't been shown to definitively improve survival with neurological outcomes favourable, that more lives were saved by giving adrenaline and that therefore that was a justification for increasing the strength of the recommendation to give adrenaline in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And they criticised us, criticised our trial rather, for the relatively small number of patients available for longer-term follow-up because there was quite a bit of dropout when we looked at the longer-term outcomes. And that's the reasonable criticism because, of course, the further you reduce your numbers as you go from initial ROSC through to hospitalisation, through to 30-day survival and further out, the smaller the numbers become, the less precision you have around the estimates of the effectiveness of this intervention. So in terms of that longer follow-up, were you able to draw anything out of the data or did we get to the point at which it became just noise? We're still looking at the longer term outcomes, but the numbers get smaller and smaller the further you go as months go past from the initial event. So that does mean that there is a lack of certainty around the findings the further away you get. So overall, the consensus seems to be that when I'm on my knees in somebody's house, having done my first few rounds of CPR, I'm still going to reach for the adrenaline at that point and give it in the knowledge that whilst it may gain ROSC and short-term survival, the long-term outcomes are less clear. Yes. I suppose Ilcor's thinking, I'm not a member of Ilcor, and obviously I wouldn't have been involved in those discussions anyway, is that the fact you've got a potentially viable patient presenting to the, I'm going to call it the cardiac arrest centre, but the receiving hospital, means there is an opportunity to try and do some things that might save some lives 
once the patient gets to hospital, and that if you fail to get return of spontaneous circulation on scene, then most of those resuscitation attempts will be terminated on scene. So those patients are dead anyway, so they won't have the opportunity to benefit from whatever might be able to be provided in hospital. And that sounds like a rational argument. So I guess the next question is, is got to be, where do we go from here? What's the next step for digging further into this? We've had several other analyses that were pre-specified in the trial. So, for example, we looked at the influence of the time to adrenaline administration and the odds of ROSC decreased in both groups, so both placebo and adrenaline groups over time, but at a greater rate in the placebo arm compared with adrenaline. But in terms of overall, that didn't seem to make much difference to what happened to the patient subsequently. So there was a suggestion that give it soon if you can. And this might be confounding my indication, might it? So, you know, the longer you are down, the more likely you are to get to the point in your resuscitation attempt where you need adrenaline. So it might be the duration of cardiac arrest rather than the time of administration that might be the key determinant of outcome. And we know that, you know, a patient who's been down for 20 minutes, so who will have had a period of no flow before bystander CPR and then low flow whilst even high quality CPR is being given is not going to do as well as someone who gets a very early return of spontaneous circulation. Now, if we go back to the initial the survival to 30 days figures, which were hovering around 2-3% across the two, people commented when we published that's a very, very low rate of survival from cardiac arrest. When you look at the national data, which is you know 8-10%, to 10%, and if you look across Europe where it's 8-10%, to 10%, but of course, we excluded hundreds and hundreds of patients from the trial because they got an early return of spontaneous circulation. So some of those will have been patients with a shockable rhythm who responded immediately to defibrillation. A smaller number will have responded to basic CPR. So when you get to the point of needing adrenaline, you are really in trouble, I think is the message. Was there any cohort difference between people who were in shockable and non-shockable rhythms initially? Yes, there was. And from memory, I don't think it actually made that much difference. What I do remember, though, was if you had a shockable rhythm, as the existing algorithms recommend, of course, if you have a shockable rhythm, what that patient needs is a shock, not other interventions that might get in the way of delivering that shock. So as Ilkor also say, you know, in a shockable rhythm, prioritise defibrillation. In a non-shockable rhythm, don't delay giving adrenaline. Now, I think the mean time to giving adrenaline, the first dose of adrenaline in our trial, was over 20 minutes from the 999 call. So that's quite a long time to wait, but that reflects the reality of out-of-hospital resuscitation, of course. We know from several studies now that exposure of individual paramedics to out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in our systems, in the NHS, is actually, it's low, if not rare. It might be two or three times a year. And you don't have, as you would with a hospital cardiac arrest, a whole team arrive. You might have two people arrive. And there's lots of things to do. Prioritising effective chest compressions, for example, and getting defibrillation in if that's indicated. And then the whole thing about trying to get venous access and whether you're doing that as intravenous access or whether you're using intraosseous access, that still takes time. And we saw what we thought were prolonged delays in getting adrenaline into patients in the first place. Certainly as a largely solo responder, if I'm on my own in somebody's house, it's phenomenally difficult to try and juggle the competing demands of getting access to the patient, providing high quality CPR, defibrillation, establishing some sort of an airway, getting some access, and then thinking about drugs often a very long way down the line. So in a sense, 20 minutes doesn't surprise me. 
and I suspect that the rural Scottish data is going to be significantly worse than that if we were able to pick that out. Yes, absolutely. It's the reality about hospital cardiac arrest, isn't it? Was there anything else that the data showed once you'd gone over it with a tooth comb? Some of this isn't published yet, but there were other analyses looking at, for example, intravenous versus intraosseous, and I don't think we came to any firm conclusions about which of those routes is better because we had so few survivors. It's difficult to have certainty about anything, you know, as the numbers diminish as you proceed down through the trial. So it is difficult. But I think the key thing for me, and we talked about our comparative effectiveness analysis earlier, is that getting the basics right early on, effective CPR, prompt defibrillation for those in whom it's indicated, those are the things that are going to be saving more lives over time and hopefully resulting in better neurological outcomes. Which is hugely reassuring given that that is very much the mantra of what we try to put across through Basic Scotland. Uh, yeah, very much on message with what we're about. Yes, it definitely confirms what many of us have been saying for years. You know, the simple things done well save lives. Were you able to look at the other drugs, either directly or by proxy, in terms of amiodarone? Or is there any plans to look at how effective amio is in resuscitation? No, I don't think we are. There have been other trials that have looked at amiodarone versus lignocaine versus placebo. And really, either of the active agents do seem to have the edge on placebo, but we haven't looked at that. So your feeling is that, certainly in terms of the international guidance, it's unlikely to herald a significant change in the current algorithm, at least as far as drug administration comes. Yes, so ILCOR have published their consensus and the American Heart Association have already published their guidance, their updated guidelines for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And they have increased the strength of the recommendation for giving adrenaline in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and indeed in-hospital cardiac arrest, although we didn't look at in-hospital cardiac arrest patients. And they've now made that a strong recommendation, but based on low certainty. The European Resuscitation Council, as you probably know, were going to publish their own guidelines, which are the ones that are more translatable into UK practice in the summer when they had their conference in Manchester. But because of COVID-19, they've cancelled their conference. And I think the ERC guidelines are likely to come out next year. So I can't say what the ERC are going to say and therefore what the UK Resuscitation Council are going to recommend. But ILCOR and the American Heart Association have increased the strength of recommendation for adrenaline. It certainly gives us a direction of travel. It does. And it's interesting because I was on a call last week with a group of interventional cardiologists discussing the in-hospital management of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients. And they, unprompted by me, suggested, well, adrenaline's on the way out. Well, I think the approach from ILCOR and the AHA suggests it isn't. But clearly still an area of some controversy. Yes, the debate continues, really. And we'll see what the European Resuscitation Council advise in their updates that will be out probably next year now. So what's the next step in terms of research? Where do we need to focus our research now to try and answer this question or to push the evidence more one way or the other? Some questions did arise out of our findings, such as are we giving the right dose? So should we be giving the bolus dose of one milligram every few minutes that's currently recommended? Should we be giving a higher dose or should we be giving a lower dose by continuous infusion? Or should we be giving smaller doses, you know, smaller aliquots more frequently during a resuscitation attempt? And I seem to remember colleagues in Australia are undertaking something called the Epidose trial, which is looking at this smaller but more frequent dosing. Now, I don't think that trial is powered for 
what I would call the important outcomes for patients, which is being alive with good neurological outcome in the long run. I think their primary outcome is survival to discharge. But someone is looking at that. I think others may be thinking about, well, should we have a trial of intraosseous versus intravenous? But I think the big thing is what can we do to protect the brain? And so, you know, is there a neuroprotectant that could improve outcomes given very, very early on in the resuscitation attempt? And are there any obvious targets for neuroprotective measures? Not off the top of my head, I'm afraid. (laughs) (laughs) There might be, in which case I'll email you later on with them, but we'll see. But I think, you know, this has got to be about protecting the brain. So if you go back to what I said earlier, you know, so when you've got no flow and then low flow for several minutes, possibly 20 minutes before adrenaline is given, you know, has the damage been done to the brain by then? Is it adrenaline that's causing the poor neurological outcome or is it the duration of resuscitation in the first place, as we suggest from one of our analyses? And I don't think we know. I think the magic bullet is going to be something to protect the brain that we can administer out in the community, you know, whilst resuscitation is continuing. Certainly, anecdotally, there's been a few ROSC cases that they've had significant amounts of adrenaline through the course of their resuscitation. And when they do get resentment spontaneous circulation, end up with a almost a rebound hypertensive episode, which I imagine can't be particularly good for an already upset brain. We've all seen those patients, haven't we? Our trial protocol was informed by some work that had gone on in London, London Ambulance Service, which looked at the cumulative dose of adrenaline during an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and outcomes. This is Rachel Fothergill's work. But if you get to 10 doses, there's no point giving any more because those patients don't survive. So we capped the number of doses of adrenaline or placebo in our trial at 10 syringes. I mean, that's an interesting outcome in itself because I don't think there is any vehicle or combination of vehicles within the rural Scottish system that would carry anything approaching that routinely no i won't say that's not a bad thing but you know i I don't think there is evidence to support giving more doses of adrenaline at the current or or more repeat doses of adrenaline at the dosage of you know one milligram that we currently give some of us are old enough to remember giving 10 milligrams and you'd see sort of coming into the unit lots of people who had rosc but were very you know blood pressures through the ceiling and you only have to ask colleagues I think in the Netherlands, who put an arterial line in and then measured the response to a milligram of adrenaline given as a bolus dose. And of course, blood pressures go through the roof and that can't be good for anybody. So maybe it's a combination then of downtime and ischemic brain damage and then the intense vasoconstriction that's caused by a whack of adrenaline that is causing harm. So again, back to this thing about what do we do to protect the brain? We know that pre-hospital cooling has delivered so cold fluids isn't effective and might be dangerous because of refibrillation. We know that the recent Swedish trial on intranasal cooling was inconclusive, although the authors will say there was a trend towards benefit, but trend towards benefit isn't proof of benefit, of course. So we're going to have to think of something else to protect the brain. Certainly scope for quite a bit of digging in the future. There's lots more research to do. (laughs) And of course, the, the issue is that, as in most clinical trials of critically ill patients, the you know critical illness patients are heterogeneous, and there's all sorts of things going on. And it might be that we need a different approach to trials in critically ill patients. And I know the intensive care community have written quite a bit about this. To wrap things up, we've been asking all of our presenters 
to give three top tips for basics responders, in this case, dealing with cardiac arrest in terms of their drug management. Okay, I've got three things here, really. And the first is that it does seem that it's basic life support, high quality chest compressions and early defibrillation that are going to yield the most in terms of good patient outcomes. That the medicines we have don't have strong evidence of benefit, whether for adrenaline or amiodarone or lignocaine, in terms of a sustained positive effect on survival with a good neurological outcome. Although adrenaline, of course, has now been proven to increase your likelihood of return to spontaneous circulation. And the holy grail remains protecting the brain. So if anyone has any ideas about what neuroprotective agent might be amenable to a pre-hospital trial, and remember how complex and challenging pre-hospital trials are with these very, very sick patients, then that's the holy grail, I think. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for going through the evidence in such detail. I think it's really useful to get a flavour of where we're at and where we need to focus efforts from here. No, it's my pleasure. I have just found the paper on the analysis by presenting rhythm, if you want to hear a bit about that. Yes, that would be brilliant. Okay, so basically then, we knew the initial rhythm for 98% of patients in the placebo arm and about 98% in the adrenaline arm. So we had, we had good data on the initial rhythm. The effect on rate of ROSC for adrenaline relative to placebo was greater in patients with non-shockable rhythms. And for neurological outcome at discharge, the odds ratio for survival with the good neurological outcome was 1.8 for non-shockable and 1.1 for shockable. And I think what that's doing is informing the ILCOR decision about when they made their recommendation that if you've got a shockable patient, shock them, prioritise defibrillation, and where you've got a non-shockable rhythm, get on and give adrenaline as soon as you possibly can. That's brilliant. It pins down the detail and, and underlines the state of the current recommendations and the current algorithm. Yes. Yes. So I, I don't see the current algorithm changing, but we'll see next year. Indeed. Tom, thanks so much for coming on and chatting to us. We'll put links up to the paramedic trial and to the subsequent data analyses from it. And uh, if we hear of anybody who's got good ideas as to how to neuroprotect in the field, then we'll get in touch. Brilliant. Good. And do put up a link to the ILCOR as well, if you can, because it just describes their thinking around the interpretation. We shall do. Thanks very much. You take care. Thanks very much. Bye. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland. Basic Scotland.